If you want to make your own podcast but feel intimidated by the tech barriers, then you might need Alitu. Alitu is a web app that lets you create and publish great sounding podcast episodes. It takes care of the complicated stuff, leaving you free to concentrate on what you do best, talking about your passion. Alitu, the podcast maker app, find it at alitu.com. That's A-L-I-T-U dot com. Hey everyone, this is the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast. I am your host, Josh Rapoon. Today is the third edition of Quick Kind Bites, episodes which feature folks outside of Hawaii who are leaders in education. These episodes are designed to be quick. You can listen on your morning walk or commute, and energetic examinations of the important education issues of the day. In the first Quick Kind Bite, we talked to middle school expert Chris Baum. Today, we are doing part two of my episode with Stephanie Malia Kraus, who is now, after the release of her book, Making It, a best-selling author. As I noted in my introduction to part one of this interview, Stephanie Malia is a mom with a background in education and social work. Through her experiences teaching and running a school, she realized that getting young people to graduate does not always mean they are ready for life. This was true in her own life. As a high school dropout, she needed people and opportunities within and beyond school to prepare her for adulthood. Stephanie Malia, who is native Hawaiian, works at the intersection of education, human services, and workforce development. Her work focuses on what young people and their families need to survive and thrive now and in the future. She is the owner and principal of First Quarter Strategies, a senior advisor to Jobs of the Future and a staff consultant for the Youth Transition Funders Group. Learn more about her work and ways to collaborate with her at stephaniemaliakraus.com. And now, here's part two of my interview with Stephanie Malia Kraus, author of Making It. Stephanie Malia, welcome back to part two of our podcast. Josh, I'm so glad to be here. I'm ready for it. All right. So for those people who listened to part one of this interview, I am sad to say it was not possible to do the second part in front of a live audience, but no worries. This is going to be epic anyway. Um, and I am happy to report that Stephanie Malia will be featured on April 27th at 1 p.m. Hawaii time in the Game Changer speaker series on the What School Could Be platform, which is fantastic. For more on Stephanie Malia's appearance on this series, go to the What School Could Be Facebook page. If you are an educator or education leader, install the What School Could Be app and join this rapidly expanding global community. Okay, let's dive into more questions about your book, Making It, being aware, of course, that we are limiting ourselves painfully, painfully to 40 minutes. So here we go. So here's a quote, Stephanie Malia, from Making It, your book. Living in an open source society means that anyone from an aspiring entrepreneur in rural Wyoming to a business executive in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, can contribute to solving the same problem. 
So what does this mean for kids in school? Thanks, Josh. I think uh, I was a fifth grade teacher. I tend to alliterate. So I'm going to do three P's here uh, that are not in the book to talk about open source society. I think there's power, possibility, and peril, maybe potential peril, um, with what it means to have so much access and ability to engage. So the power is evident in movement building. We see that young people can go on the internet, that they can join virtual communities, that they can learn where to show up, what to sign up for. Um, That enables them to be activists and agents for change in the issues that matter for them, whether that's showing up for Black Lives Matter protest movement um, or being able to engage with legislators and others through social media uh, and actually reaching them, whether it's through Twitter message or something else. Mm -hmm. I think the possibility is the opportunity to really be a constructor of novel solutions. We see these through hackathons, um, other mediums where Minecraft is a video game that really I think exemplifies this of joining a community of people online to be able to co-construct or co-design solutions. But the peril I talk about in the book is that things like patents um, or even publishing a book, Mm -hmm. uh, they are sometimes outdated by the time you go through the process. So we're living in this time of such rapid, accelerated change that there is this sense of things being out of date before they're even really in the market. And so young people just need to prepare for that reality and know that that reality is is going to stick with them throughout their working life. Yeah, that's so interesting. I did an episode um, earlier in this season with a young man uh, who graduated from Waipahu High School. He's currently at American University uh, virtually. His name is Kavika Kekoa Pegram, and he wanted to get involved in the climate change movement here in Hawaii. And he reached out to a national organization through Twitter. He just DM'd the person who was the CEO of the organization and was surprised when she immediately messaged him back. And in the episode, we talked with him about how he was prepared for that moment, that he had emerging competencies and that he was beginning to build his connections. Um, and, you know, there was a certain currency, which you've talked about, that he was developing at that point, which allowed him to be confident enough to say, sure, I'll get involved to accept the invitation from her. So it sounds like that's kind of what you're talking about, right? I think that's a perfect example of it. Yeah. So, Look, in the last five years, as I've been doing all of this, most likely to succeed and what school could be work in public appearances and in small group sessions, I've talked a lot about um, Tom Friedman, who's a columnist for The New York Times, and his phrase, um, the age of acceleration. Um, We are living in the middle of it, according to Friedman, um, and I could not agree more. Um, So in your book, Making It, you call it Momentum. So what mm-hmm. is what is momentum and why should parents and kids care about it? Yeah, so Tom Friedman just wrote um, 
another book and the title escapes me, but years ago when I was in graduate school, he wrote about our flat world. And in this sort of follow-up, he wrote that we live in this fast and flat world. Mm -hmm. And that for me is is what momentum is, which means the world is changing in part because of this open source society faster than it actually ever has. There's a compounding quality to the change. And so we feel it in our bodies and in our households and in our workplaces. It feels like the overwhelm. It feels like the running and not being able to keep up. Um, And it's also evidenced in the products we buy, whether it's the new updates to the iPhone or needing different technologies that suddenly require an altogether upgraded platform. And so the technologies we have just no longer work. Um, So momentum is really important to brace for and to understand because often, I think particularly in the pandemic, there's this sense of going back to normal. Hmm. Well, when things settle down, when things slow down, and one of the things I wanted to make clear in making it is And I believe we talked about this a little bit on the first part. Young people today, Generation Z and those younger than them, have grown up with incredible disruption and acceleration as defining qualities of their entire lives since birth. You know, for any child born after 2007, my 10-year-old was born three years after. That's three years after Twitter, iPhone, um, smart technologies total. So the the big piece I think to hear in that is the rate of change and the speed of change is faster and we feel it and mm-hmm. that's right, but that it will continue as actually the new normal uh, pace and that there are um, implications to what that means in terms of our working lives, but also just our living lives. Mm-hmm. And it it sounds like what we're talking about here is almost like a flywheel, a heavy flywheel, which um, in and of itself is a very dynamic object, because once it gets going, it has all of these marvelous qualities, uh, you know, in terms of momentum and how fast it's going and how powerful it is. But at the same time, it can also be dangerous, because if you interact with it, it can be tough, you know, right? I mean, life when you're when you're in the middle of that kind of a flywheel effect can be um, very disconcerting as you're talking about. Yeah, I think so. You know, it makes me think I'm your flywheel <laughs> metaphor makes me think about like the circus and mm. that um, the spinning pieces where if you're in the right part before the ride starts, your back is going to be plastered to the <laughs> wall and you'll be able to survive it. But God yeah. forbid you're not standing in the right spot at the time and you just become a victim of the spin. Yeah. And so I think that's the piece, right? That there are ways to orient, to sort of get ready for uh, the motion mm-hmm. that is the future and the future of work and learning, but that there's also like the chance of motion sickness if we don't have the strategies we need. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. So, so speaking of 
work and the future of work, um, we used to be all about white collar jobs and blue collar jobs, but you argue that this paradigm is on the way out. So what is uh, the currently developing paradigm and, and with what implication for the traditional college or bust pathway? So in the book, I take this on in a couple of different ways. I'll just give broad strokes here. One is that it's important for those of us who are coaching kids in college and career readiness and helping them think about their working life to think in terms of durability and resilience in the future. So we've got to move beyond callers and instead look at is this a job that will endure mm. as technology advances, as the world changes rapidly and at an accelerated pace? Or could it actually, by momentum, be made to be outdated or obsolete, just not needed anymore? Mm. Or by technology taken over and done by someone else, either in a different country, that flat world paradigm that Tom Friedman talks about, or by the technology itself. So the kind of life hack here for educators, which is really good for education in particular, is that from a technology perspective, if something is patterned and predictable, a job is patterned and predictable. This everything from an accountant who follows the formulas to crunch numbers, a, certain types of data scientists, but also a lot of um, blue-collared work that really is routine. That's the most likely to be taken over by tech. Mm -hmm. um, and if something is dated, like uh, poor accountants, I'll use them again. <laughs> Things yeah. that, um, you know, no longer require in paper because you can now do it online. You'll see, again, the relationship with technology is kind of ever present here. Mm -hmm. Those are also at risk. The jobs I actually think and propose in the book that will endure then are the ones that are truly human, unique, and unpredictable. Mm -hmm. So this is the time to be a craftsman to be an artist, to be an educator, to be a nurse, to be in the care economy, um, or to be a politician or a leader. Um, things that you really, you do have to encounter and take on the unpredictable. Mm. So perfect. So I want to read a quote from your book. Um, you write, today's kids must learn to solve problems and make decisions. This requires the ability to look at a situation or scenario, familiarize yourself with it, and then figure out what needs to be done. Solving problems and making decisions go hand in hand. They should be viewed as an ongoing process rather than something to accomplish. So it sounds to me like um, any kind, any kid in a traditional education system, mostly memorizing low-level content and developing low-level skills will emerge as least likely to succeed, in effect, chained to the starting line of life's marathon. So what are your, what are your thoughts about that? Well, 
there's my perspective as a parent when I look at my 10 and eight-year-old. And then there's my lament as an educator and a school leader. So I may answer this differently than you expect. I think as a parent and educator, when the pandemic hit and we were provided a plan for what learning would look like, um, it was rote It was only focused on sort of standards and content. Here are these packets to pick up. We're going to just go through these lessons sequentially um, so that your kid gets into the next grade. And I didn't know what to do. And ultimately, we pulled our children out of school completely. We unenrolled them. And it was because of this sort of horrified Uh, face I made at my husband. And I said, I can't write a book on what kids need to succeed and what they need for the future and then sign up for the opposite. Mm -hmm. And so my lament is what I did with my kids. And we had the agency and opportunity to do it because my mom lives here and my husband and I work from home. So it was very uncommon that we could do it. it. Was a year full of living as learning, experiential learning, Mm. project-based learning that put the focus on inquiry and skill development, cognitive, social, and emotional, looking at sort of this whole child, whole life perspective Mm. that moved away from sequencing and sort of completion And content knowledge for content knowledge's sake. Um, So I'm very interested in what are the interests and issues that my kids are seeing. We are taking on things like climate change. They're eight and 10. Mm -hmm. We're taking on things like race relations. We're taking on things like environmental issues. As you know, I'm Native Hawaiian. You know, what's happening in Hawaii right now? What can we learn about it? Hawaiian language. Mm -hmm. Um, So culture is key. And I lament as an educator because I know how damn hard that is. Mm -hmm. I know how many times we get pulled into compliance and completion because it's how the system is constructed. Um, And so I just have, you know, there's a space where we need to have incredible grace, but still push and advocate for change. Mm -hmm. It's not possible sometimes without literally taking kids out of the public schools to be able to do all of the things that build the sort of inquiry experience and, and competence and connections that they need. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, wow. That's such a nuanced and interesting answer. Um, If, if you don't mind, I want to take this just a little bit further. Um, And this is, this is not, you know, a question that's generated directly from the book, but it's actually indirect in the sense that when I read the book, this was something that really jumped up at me and, and caused me to kind of go in this particular direction that I'm about to describe. So, so listen, f- flat out, Stephanie Malia, I want the College Board to go bankrupt. I want the SAT <laughs> and the ACT to be abolished using a freaking amendment to the U.S. Constitution. And I want someone, I know this is the nutty part, held criminally liable for killing the inherent curiosity and joy of learning our kids are born with and mostly develop in an elementary school, but lose over the course of middle school and high school. So my question is, would you like to talk me off this ledge uh, or would you, would you like to join me? I don't know. Mm, (laughs) uh, No, not really. I think, um, okay, I'm going to give you a diplomatic answer as I think (laughs) about my relationships with folks like ACT and and others. Um, 
So I started working in the state of Virginia about eight years ago with a number of education leaders, and they had inadvertently ended up creating such a brushing, truly harming not only the creativity, but the cognitive and mental and emotional well-being of students all across the Commonwealth. Mm. And what had happened was in the era of No Child Left Behind, which while many of us did not call it a time of over-testing at the time, we all now sort of look back and reflect on it that way. Our testing required 17 standardized tests and then the accumulating, you know, the cumulative ACT or SAT at the end. Right. In the state of be exceptional and have higher expectations. And they ended up requiring 32 standardized tests for students K through 12. Um, and, and kids were getting sick and educators were getting sick yep. and love of learning was lost. And so, you know, River Run, one of the edge that you're on is what does over testing and standardization do and how does it actually conflict with how we are wired to learn and develop? And it does. I had someone in Virginia this is simply an academic um, autopsy. You can't do anything with this. Um, but then when you look at the ACT and SAT, you have to also name the degree to which it just perpetuates inequity. Right. And what is it actually testing um, in the community? It would be able to do well in the ACT and SAT. I dropped out of school and got a GED, but the reflection of the test scores was much more around how much your family could pay for coaching on the test, not the content, mm. um, than it was on what you were capable of or wanting to do growing up uh, and, and later in life. So I think that it, could be a battle worth taking on. My, again, diplomatic answer would be, I would hope and I get some signaling that those conversations are happening yep. either at the college or university level. The fact for it to happen is really, um, I think, a, a question of morals. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. And I, I'm, I'm very hopeful in this moment because of the conversations that have emerged just over the last couple of years, and really even in the last few months when the University of Chicago went test optional for admissions, I thought that that was just a fantastic moment. Um, and that some sense of reasonableness was coming into the conversation around testing. Um, so I'm, I'm feeling hopeful in the moment. Good. Yeah, it's a complicated thing, right? I will say that I um, have two graduate degrees from the top universities uh, for those programs, one in social work, one in education, neither of which required a GRE. Mm -hmm. And probably the only reason I did not go back for a PhD is test anxiety myself mm -hmm. and, and knowing I don't have the background in how to take tests because of my non-traditional schooling. Right. 
Right. Yeah. And I hear you. And and I have my story about the GRE is that when I took it, um, I was trying to get into a master's program in history here at University of Hawaii. So I took the GRE in Iowa where I was finishing my undergrad. And the verbal part was not a problem for me. And I scored very high. But on the math, which I'm terrible at, I just simply answered A, B, C, D, E over and over and over again and ended up in the 65th percentile nationally. Oh, wow. So that was a signal to me <laughs> that I was a I was a um, some kind of a fraud in terms of math if anybody looked at that score, but it was a it was an important moment in terms of my own emerging sense of who I am and what I can do or who I was and what I could do at that particular moment. So okay, so so segue slight segue. Um I feel like Stephanie Malia your book which is titled Making It could have been titled Hyperconnected but Totally Alone. You you talk about this idea at length in your book. So here in 2021, what is this emerging story? I have a mug that I bought a year ago in the middle of the pandemic. And there are two mermaids sitting separated by Mm -hmm. boulders, each on the boulder with a cup of coffee, each of them. And it says... We are all alone together. Um, <laughs> and I, I feel like that's exactly what you're saying. So yeah. um, this digs into a couple of different places, a lot back on the cognitive mental health realities that kids are facing. And and frankly, the adults are facing too. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is that, let's go back to open source society. So the other thing that I talk about in the book is this idea of like information obesity. Hmm. There has never been a time when we have been privy to so much information about each other, about what's happening, information that's true, information that's not true, the ability to broadcast who we are, um, but to control what that brand or image looks like. And so, um, Yes, I talk about how today's kids are in some ways hyper-connected thanks to the virtual world and the internet, not only to each other, but to people who they would never meet otherwise. Mm-hmm. And there's hope in that. Uh, as we become a more diversified society, the chance to connect with people and be in relationship virtually or in person who are different from you, if you live in a rural homogenous community, but you can connect with very different people online, there's a beauty there and there's a risk and a danger. And so um, one of the things that I mention uh, in the book is that while virtual connections are plentiful and in many cases are useful, the science of how we what feeds us Mm -hmm. nothing can compare to the quality of in-person interaction Mm -hmm. and when that virtual space is taking up the opportunity to connect in person or when the momentum and volatility of right now the pandemic other things that we can anticipate in the future Uh, cuts off that Mm. space, Mm -hmm. then it's really risky. Last thing here, adolescents by design, so teens, tweens, and young adults 
are wired to be hypersocial. It's how their brain makes those actual neural connections. It's mm-hmm. how they learn. Mm-hmm. It's how they develop. And so if they're not having that chance, it's not just messing up their social lives. It's actually getting in the way of their ability to learn and develop on mm-hmm. time and in the right way that they need for the future and for now. Which is, you know, what you're issuing here is is really a warning bell um, about this pandemic period, not in terms of this conversation around, you know, our kids have fallen so behind in U.S. history, they're going to forget all the content that they didn't learn. Um, it's really about the lack of relationships or the lack of actual human social time together. That's maybe the most alarming thing about the pandemic. Is that a fair statement? So I think it's really interesting. One of the things that we're not talking enough about are what are the things, the signs and symptoms that we need to be looking out for in the future, that even as we are vaccinated, the impact developmentally, mental health-wise on adolescents in particular, Mm -hmm. of having their social lives disrupted um, is significant. And it's not that they will be unable to recover. They will, but we need to be prepared and armed with the strategies for it. Mm -hmm. So when you think about hyperconnectivity and the pandemic year, there is this tactical digital connection. Who was hyperconnected digitally Mm -hmm. and how did that assist them and who wasn't? Then there is the relational connection for social and mental health who kept the people in their lives who are good and supportive. But there's also the part about the brain's wiring. Mm. In what ways did a reduction in social connections actually get in the way of the ability to keep learning and developing? And and what does that mean for the future? And what does that mean for now? Mm -hmm. So so here's a follow-up question to this. Back in 1999 and 2000, I was getting my master's degree in education and education foundations at University of Hawaii at Manoa. And um, maybe, arguably, the most important book I read during those two years of master's work was Robert Putnam bowling alone. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I recall at the time, because this was early in the ed tech movement where people were starting to go one-to-one with devices in the classroom, that what Putnam was doing was issuing a similar warning about the fact that at that time, it was about really about kids and parents kind of going off to their separate rooms and watching TV and not eating dinner together. I'm simplifying it, but that's kind of the core of what he was talking about. And that um, bowling alone, we might be putting our social construct in danger. So my question to you is, like, as you were doing your research for your book and constructing um, your thoughts around hyperconnected but totally alone, to what extent were um, similar types of works like Putnam's informative to you as you were developing your own thinking around it? Hugely. So for folks who don't know, Robert Putnam, Bob Putnam is a researcher out of Harvard. Um, His most recent book that I have on my shelf is called Our Kids, The American Dream in Crisis. And Bowling Alone was from a couple decades ago, I think. Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, I guess it was. You were talking about your master's program. And it, it really lifted up this idea of what are the different roles that relationships play besides just being beneficial to our hearts. Mm -hmm. Uh, And being just a general important piece. And so 
the way that we might think about this in education and for those of us who are taking care of kids ourselves um, as parents or caretakers is that we need to attend to young people's social health and social wealth, that there is a way in which social interactions support the learning and development, which we were just talking about, or a lack of social interactions or healthy interactions actually hurt or hinder Mm -hmm. development and learning. But there's also the role of relationships that as as currency, as actually having value and opening up what's possible from an opportunity perspective, Mm. what more learning and work can be done. Now, something we have not talked about a lot is the role that some of the extras play in high school, in middle school, um, in actually being okay in life after high school Mm. and and mostly because of the social architecting of those for future scholarship opportunities or job opportunities, the sort of quality of who you know gets you in or gets you the conversation. For For students from low income backgrounds whose parents were working or in crisis during the pandemic without, um, families who already had a wealth of beneficial social relationships, if they missed their entire junior year or senior year because of the pandemic and missed out on those in-person extracurricular times, that could cost them economically Mm -hmm. in the future. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. That's just, that's just so interesting. And it's actually maybe a perfect segue to my next question, um, Stephanie Malaya, which is that here, I'm going to read a quote from your book. Um, Digital navigators are going to become increasingly common. There are some really thoughtful hybrid models that blend no to low cost, powerful technology and still essential human interactions. One of my favorites is my colleague, Jamie Alexis Fowler's organization, Empower Work. So uh, what is a digital navigator? This is a, you know, as I explored this in your book, I was just like, wow, this is amazing. Um, and what has Jamie Alexis Fowler created and, and why? Yeah, um, gosh, I do. I love Jamie's work. And I was just thinking about um, a, another a startup that my friend Katie's doing that I'll mention as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but first, for folks who are interested in this idea of social capital, who are listening, the person who taught me everything I need to know about digital navigators and social capital, um, Robert Putnam was a great grounding theoretically, but my friend Julia Freeland Fisher, who wrote the book, who you know, Hmm. that's all about social capital and education and how we can design for it. So I really just want to recommend that as a resource. So the best ways in which we can think about the value of this virtual um, world in providing a platform is how can we use exactly what I said, how can we use tech as a platform to bring people together in easier 
less costly, often free and fast ways. Mm. A great example that most of us are now familiar with if we've been digitally connected this year is telehealth. Yeah, We had to go to the doctor or go to the therapist's office in person. And I think what a lot of us, including medical and mental health professionals have realized this year is just how much can be accomplished through telehealth. But you need a sophisticated technology platform to Mm -hmm. make that as easy and seamless as possible. Mm -hmm. Jamie's organization trains volunteers in how to have that in-person connection to coach somebody through a difficult work situation when they can't go to HR at their job and they know something is wrong or they think something is off um, and to get the resources they need. But it uses all of the things that are advanced tech like the chat bot and Mm -hmm. sophisticated website to quickly connect you with the right person. There's another platform where you answer sort of like eHarmony for therapy. Mm. You answer a set of questions about where you are and what you're going through and who you're looking for. And then the algorithm pops out here are the therapists who we think would be a good fit for you. And if it's not, we'll pair you with somebody else. Mm -hmm. In each of these examples, it highlights what um, I refer to in the book as a tech-touch relationship or a man-machine relationship, which is we embrace and hold on to the things that are fundamentally human, Mm -hmm. and we learn and take advantage of the things that are available to us through technology. Mm -hmm. And I think what I'm really thinking about in this moment is that that I want a digital navigator in my life. Um, Maybe I have, (laughs) to a considerable extent, been my own digital navigator, and maybe I've been a digital navigator for others. Um, But nevertheless, this is the paradigm that you're describing as we go forward, is that because so much of life is digital, these navigators, if you will, are really really important people within your network with who you know, or in terms of who you know, right? And and that's kind of a, maybe a skill that you have to have as you go forward to be successful in a, over a hundred years of life, um, that you at least know how to navigate digitally yourself or that you have people that can help you do that, right? Yeah, that's right. And I'll go back to the young man who you described who wanted to get involved in climate change at the yeah. beginning of the call. Mm-hmm. Twitter provided the platform, but he had the gumption and the skill to do the outreach and then follow through. Yep. Boy, did he ever. And then because I was preparing for that interview by going through his Twitter feed, I actually saw firsthand the way that he used it to galvanize people, which was remarkable. Um, Mm -hmm. So in effect, he he had digital navigators on his team, if you will, but he was also learning how to do his own navigation, which was remarkable. Um, Very cool. Okay. So um, we have time for a couple more questions. So this is a quote from Make it that really caught my attention. You wrote, increasingly going to college or pursuing a post-secondary credential will feel like shopping on a poorly organized Amazon, complete (laughs) with having to search for what you want, decide whether it's a good deal, compare prices, read reviews, and know which models and features are worth the expense. So 
If I were a loving and caring parent of a child entering the school system, you might have just stressed me out. Um, so help me to see your quote as inspiring rather than frightening. Oh, gosh. Okay. <laughs> Sorry to so, put you on the hot um, seat there. Yeah. So how to find it inspiring. So I am always a believer that you need to be served up the information, shift into a place of acceptance, and then find the hope in that. So here's what you need to know. Um, friends who are also raising kids or advising kids on college, there are hundreds of thousands of options out there. Hmm. and about half of them are actually offered by companies or organizations, not universities and colleges. Mm -hmm. In the new world of work, I would encourage you to embrace the now next principle. So it's possible that our kids with the right supports and resources could live a very long life, potentially a hundred years as the rule and not the exception, which means they could have an 80-year working life. Now, I've just overwhelmed you more if you're listening to this. But here's the, the hope in that. Whatever they do first, whatever they do now is not the last thing. Mm -hmm. And so it is about taking a full assessment of what is it that they want, interests, needs, available supports, desires, and knowing that you can actually, while there's this potential for a long life, shorten the time horizon and make a decision that makes sense right now and know that they'll have the chance to go back on that Amazon mm -hmm. marketplace and that they'll have to do it again. And so the acceptance piece is this is a lifetime of upgrading and updating your skills and your credentials. Mm -hmm. But in the immediate term, you can really shorten your time horizon and have conversations about what do you want to do for the next three to five years and what's possible for us right now? Mm -hmm. um, and just know that you're not going to have to hold to that decision forever. Mm. And in that, I feel a great sense of hope. If I were a kid in middle school right now with my parents, I would see that as a very hopeful thing that you've just said. You've taken a lot of stress off of my shoulders because I can see that this is going to be sort of a uh, life is going to be a grand experiment. A series of experiments, um, not just one experiment, right? Absolutely. Yeah, that's wow, that's fantastic. So, your book, Making It, literally rocketed to the top of the best selling lists right out of the gate. And you exceeded your publisher's predictions about book sales by a factor of what feels like a hundred. Um, so, what are your thoughts about this? How are you feeling about entering so rapidly the mainstream conversations around making it in the 21st century through the book that you've written? So Josh, it's really interesting. I, um, I was worried when I started out that nobody would read this book <laughs> because it talked about things that we don't talk about, like the role, how much it really matters, who you know, and cash, which educators don't really talk about. Right. It also embraced parents as educators, which yeah. at the time, two years ago, <laughs> a lifetime ago, um, felt a little strange. And then suddenly our households became homeschools yep. and every parent and caretaker was also educating their kids. And so I think that um, 
the book came out as one of the first to be able to give deep treatment to the pandemic and the other crises, racial uprisings, economic crisis, because the content already fit with it. And the reason why it fit was that my promise when I decided it was time to write a book was an honest accounting of What do you need in a world that is still unfair and unjust, even as we're working to build a better one? And I think people need that. Like there's just this sense, this gritty sense of how do you survive and thrive at the same time? How can we get super honest about what it really takes to be okay, Mm -hmm. even as we're trying to like improve our well-being and flourish and that you have to be pursuing both at once. And too often we either talk about the basics of survival or life flourishing, but not the like murky middle. And this book came out to really talk about the the murky or messy middle. Um, and so I'm just grateful. Like I, I wrote the book because I wanted it to be read because it was the book that I needed when I was in the classroom and running a school. And it's the the book that I need now as a parent. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm so grateful that it can fill that need for for other people who are raising and working with kids. Mm-hmm. And for those people listening, like myself, um, uh, who've always aspired to write a book or to be an author of some sort or, a, 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 you know, put up a published piece of some sort, like, literally, what did it feel like in the hours and the couple of days after your book went on sale on Amazon and you saw those numbers go up? What What were you, what was going on in your mind, in your heart? I think I was terrified (laughs) and shocked and the books arrived at our house and I was so scared of reading it. My poor husband had to read it because I thought, oh my God, I'm going to find these typos and I can't fix them. Um, (laughs) So that was sort of the like dominating thought, but also... um, The thing that I haven't done well that I aspire to get to is that... um, really just sitting in it. So the honest moment here is I was a high school dropout kid with a GED and this so far exceeds, you know, I'm a lifetime reader and writer of my own journaling variety and then had written for work. But the chance to combine that and tell my story and the stories of others and to lift up the research, I just, um, I feel really privileged and humbled and I see it as a tremendous responsibility. So I felt the weight of that responsibility Mm. um, along with some, some jitters and excitement. Mm. And you, you've given me an idea possibly for some future book series, which would be books that arrived just in time. Yes. There must be a whole (laughs) category, you know, and in some ways I see Ted Dintersmith's book, what school could be, which was published in April of 2017 as just in time. We, we were all experiencing post, um, you know, no child left behind, you know, trauma. It was, it was, yeah. and his book arrived and suddenly uplifted the innovators and creative and imaginative teachers that he found in every corner of every state. And it was just like, oh boy. And his book similarly went straight to the top of the bestseller list in that moment. So how fun it would be to go through and pick out books that arrived just in time and study them that way. Wouldn't that be fun? That's right. Yeah. Yeah, I did tell the publisher, I said, thank God I wasn't writing a book about like dynamic hands-on things 
things you can do in the classroom. Right. (laughs) Right. Right. Exactly. So I think that that it's perfect as we close this part two today um, that you read the final page of your book, Making It, Stephanie Malia Krauss. Would you do that for us? I would love to. So the final page starts with taking it to the next level. Readiness for tomorrow's world should be the right of every young person in America. Living life in tomorrow's world will be costly and require so much more than earning a high school diploma or college degree. Young people will rely on various kinds and combinations of competencies to live, work, and learn. They will need the credibility that comes with credentials to prove and validate what they know and can do. They will need substantial social and financial capital to afford the expenses and experiences that come with the possibility of a 100-year life. And they will need to endure a world and time that is shaky and shifting sometimes feeling as though it is spinning out of control. This book was only about making it, establishing the necessary baseline for getting started in adulthood in a world that remains unfair and unjust. Without this, young people will find themselves constantly catching up and falling behind, especially those who started out behind by no fault of their own. There is also an important difference between having the currencies to make it in life and having the enduring assets to thrive, enjoy life, and take it to the next level. As currency builders, the work described in this book is only the beginning. We start by helping today's kids acquire the currencies they need. As we do that, we must find other currency builders and work collectively to change the world, systems, and structures they are growing up in, finally making them fair and just. Currency builders see this dual role as a moral imperative. Beyond making it, young people need us to help them flourish in changing and challenging times, to take whatever life looks like and make it something worthwhile, meaningful, and healthful to not just prepare, but provide today's kids with the promise of well-being and well-becoming. Awesome. Fantastic. Stephanie Malia Krauss, thank you so much for taking the time to do this part two of our podcast together. Um, I would love to look forward to possibly a part three, maybe later or towards the end of the year, where we could actually take a maybe a granular look at some of the impacts that you've discovered as a result of writing this book, real things that have happened on the ground. That would be a lot of fun to do. Um, so hopefully we could we could pull something like that together towards the end of the year. So thank you. And I hope your family, your husband and your two boys, uh, that you stay safe as we come to the end of this long pandemic, the God's willing. (laughs) Well, (laughs) mahalo nui, Josh. Thank you so much. It has been an absolute pleasure to connect with you on all of these topics. And um, I am looking forward to the next conversation. Awesome. Okay. We'll see you soon. (laughs) 